And as you're seating, high-five the person next to you and say, praise to God. That didn't sound so exciting. Is it in your heart? Praise to God. I mean, this is, that's great truths that we're singing there. Perhaps you don't like the high-five. I do. I'm a sports fan. But I think Jeffrey was maybe three when I first came to Grace here. And it really is, as Walt was saying, a joy to watch some of our young people grow up in this church and watch them serving the Lord. We, in the first service, I was sitting next to Ian Spears, and I turned to him and I said, one day you're going to preach here and Jeff's going to lead in worship. And I said, that's a prophetic word. You mark it June 14th, 2015. And he was probably like, whoa, what's going on? I should have been beaten on his chest or something while I was saying it to give it some authority. But God is really raising some people up. And it's really exciting to see the next generation of young people come along. And I want us to be encouraged by that. Because we need to continue to faithfully proclaim Jesus so that people can faithfully receive that and then faithfully proclaim that to others so that they can know as well. Well, this, last week Eric was sharing that he's got some travel coming up and I wanted to let you know that I do as well. Tonight at 11.59 p.m. I get on a Delta flight headed to Birmingham, Alabama. Praise God. Roll Tide. And so I'm looking forward to this trip and you can pray for me. This is not really turning out the way I wanted it to. I wanted to go fish and relax, take it easy. But Joni's dad has taken a turn for the worse in this past week. He's been struggling with Alzheimer's and just, I mean, you start forgetting everything, how to walk, how to go to the bathroom. I mean, everything. And it's really become a burden to Joni's mom. And we've had to make some real serious decisions this past week and and I just started watching my vacation just dwindle away as there's just a lot of details I have to take care of when I get back there. So if you would remember, please pray. Um, I would like to get a little bit of fishing in. And I want to joyfully and willingly embrace whatever is in store for me in this next week. And so pray for me on that. And then also right after that, the following Monday... On the 22nd, I'll be taking off to Kenya to visit our partners, the Musiokas, and spend some time with them. And I've invited my son, Andrew. Speaking of the next generation coming up, I've invited my son, Andrew. We're going to go up Mount Kenya together. And then, as a reminder, we have what we call first fruits here. For every dollar that we pay on our mortgage here, we send 10 cents overseas. And so that money accumulates. And a few years back, we actually built a church building in Makongo, in the Katui region of Kenya. And Andrew is going to be going with me to that church, and we're going to do our first father-son tally tag team sermon. And you can imagine the delight that I feel in my heart right now. I mean, it's just going to be amazing. Um, and I'm looking forward to this. And again, God raising up a generation of people. And pray that we could encourage the Musiokas. Some of you remember Joe Muchikehu, who came here a few years back. We had a number of Kenyans who were here, and I'm going to be able to spend some time with Joe and do some ministry in the slums there. The Nairobi slum is the largest in the world, and we will be able to partner with some pastors there. And I really want Andrew to get that experience. Um, it was very impacting to me to be there and fellowship with believers there. So we're going to be doing that. So be praying. A lot going on. 
um, in the days ahead. But we want to turn our attention to Mark. So open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 13 through 31. If you do not have a Bible, just lift your hand up. Just real quick, if you need a Bible, um, just lift your hand up. We've got ushers. We've got some back here in the corner, some up here in the front. So back that way and up front, we got one over here as well. And so we love God's Word, and we look forward to opening it up week after week. And so Mark chapter 10, in verse 13 to 31, is where we're going to be today. I want to tell you about my dog. Now, my dog is appropriately named Bama. Now, you can imagine the psychological damage that we inflict on our dog during football season, and we watch Alabama football. It'd be like, no, Bama, stop, you know, or go Bama, and our dog's, you know, like, whoa, what's going on, you know? I mean, we're watching the TV set, and, and Bama thinks it's all about him. It's not, but we do other things to psychologically damage our dog, I, I, I must confess. And so if you spend some time in the Tally household, uh, you'll see what we do to damage our dog. But one of my favorites, see now you're, you're starting to learn something about me. I actually enjoy this. But one of my favorites is a flashlight. And so you may have a dog too that loves to chase the light. And so you got to get a beam on it and you shine it on the wall and start shaking it. And the dog just pounces at it. And then you swing it across the floor and just do it all over the place. And our dog's just running all over just trying to attack this light. I just, I just, great joy out of doing that. But part of what's interesting about it is as a human being, I sit and watch this dog and think, you are so stupid. I mean, what in the world? Why are you doing this? This is futile to chase this light beam all over the place thinking that you're going to catch something. Yet our dog will do it endlessly. I mean, our dog will do it so long, he'll finally just come over and just sit down lay down, his tongue will just droop out, and then all you have to do is pop it back up again, and there he goes. I mean, I think he would die, have a heart attack, that he would be so intent on catching this light. And I, I sit back, and I think, that's so futile. Why are you doing this? And why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I think from God's perspective, looking down on our lives as well, he also notices vain, futile pursuit in our life, just like my dog. Just futile, futility. The things that we pour our lives into, the things that we chase after, trying to grasp onto them, and in the end, they really amount to nothing. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it says, that in, in the context of idolatry, you walked after emptiness and became empty. And it talks about walking after things that do not profit. Well, today in our passage, we have two different scenes that we're going to look at. And these scenes have everything to do with what it means to receive the kingdom. We're going to find children who gladly embrace and a rich man who walks away because of what he is clinging to in futility for life. Let me read this passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to work our way through it. So Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man or rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, We've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We can only imagine what our lives would be like without the truths of your word to cling to, to hold on to, to be a light into our path, a lamp into our feet. And Lord, we pray today that your word would be alive and powerful and soften any hardness and bring light to darkness. Lord, we want to give this time to you. We need you to work. And so we bring our lives before you right now. And we ask that you would meet us right where we are, all of us with all the different things that are going on in us. For such a time as this, you have us right here with our Bibles open to Mark 10. Verses 13 to 31. So Lord, be merciful to us and and help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, would you grant them the kingdom? Would you call them to be your very own? Adopt them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have in these verses, verses 13 through 31, are two scenes that we want to look at. Little children and then this rich man. And in each of these scenes, there's actually a spiritual lesson that Jesus gives. And so we want to see the the scene and understand the particulars of it and then grasp that spiritual lesson that Jesus wants us to grasp. So in scene number one, 
We've got Jesus and these children. And we're going to just plug or just take verse 15 out as the spiritual lesson and put it to the side for a moment and look at the scene itself. You've got these children, parents bringing them to Jesus. The disciples aren't happy with this. Jesus rebukes, I mean, is indignant and tells them to let the children come. And then he puts them up in his lap and he blesses them. That's the scene that we have here. And we don't know when we look at verse 13 why the crowds are bringing these children to Jesus to touch them. We haven't seen anything like this up to this point. No people are identified. The reason for it is not identified. It simply seems to be that there's this holy man there, this very prominent teacher, and they simply want their children to be in his presence and perhaps even bless them as Jesus eventually does in verse 16. That could be their desires. So that's what's happening. Jesus, a very important person. He's on a mission. He's been teaching. People are gathered around him. People want to have some of his time. And these children are scurrying about as well. And the response of the disciples is what catches our attention from the very beginning. They rebuked them. And so they, they had some stern words for these parents who were doing this. And this is very interesting, this word. I mean, even when you go back to chapter 9, verse 25, we see the context that this word is often used. Chapter 9, verse 25, there's a crowd come running together to Jesus and he rebuked the unclean spirit. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's where we see this word rebuked used oftentimes in exorcisms. And this is the same kind of, of words or same kind of manner of speech or attitude that the disciples are actually bringing towards these parents as they rebuke them. Childhood in this particular time period was regarded, and these are the words that I read, an unavoidable interim. Unavoidable interim between birth and age 13 when they became adults. And so they're a nuisance. They're, they're in the way. They're somehow a hindrance to the, the important work that Jesus is doing. And especially these are probably younger because in verse 16 it says, he took them in his arms. And so these are no doubt younger children. Well, then Jesus responds. That's the disciples' response. They rebuke him. But then Jesus responds. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And this is the only time this particular word is used of Jesus in the Gospels. It's not the first time that Jesus is looking at a scene and has these angry emotions. You can see back in chapter 3, verse 5, and where you see some of the same response by Jesus. You also might think of the cleansing of the temple. I mean, he starts flipping over tables of the money changers I mean, so Jesus has had this emotion from time to time, but this is a strong emotion. And this isn't something that slowly builds. It's quick. It's a response to a situation. You learn a lot about a person when you see this kind of emotion expressed in a situation. And here, once again, we see Jesus coming to the aid, having compassion for, defending those in society who are mo more helpless, vulnerable, and powerless. So here's these children just being turned away. And Jesus, it, it arouses something inside of him. And then he has this response. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so once again, we see Jesus doing what he's done in almost every page of Mark. 
those who are not likely to be in the kingdom or least likely, the least of people, the unclean, Gentiles, women, whatever it might be in the way their culture viewed. And now these children, Jesus says, to, to these, to such as these belongs the kingdom. And Jesus is welcoming them in as well. And then in verse 16, he takes them in his arms and he blesses them. He lays his hands on them. He does more than touch them. And maybe this is what they were after, as I said earlier. Maybe they were after that blessing. The story doesn't tell us why they want this or why Jesus does this. We've seen Jesus touch people throughout the book of Mark, especially the unclean, sick, those who need healing of some type, whereas power seems to be just transferred symbolically in that laying on of hands. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see that fathers would bless their children, conferring on them the name and property that so is passed on to them. We also see throughout the Old Testament leaders laying on of hands on the leaders in order to put them into a particular office. This also happens in the early church. You see it in the book of Acts. It's laying on of hands. It's even practiced today. Oftentimes, when we want to commission, such as tomorrow night, a team going to Rwanda will gather around and lay hands on them in order to send them out. The laying on of hands, this giving of this blessing, seems to include at least the, the passing on of something of value. And so Jesus is doing something here, passing on his love, welcoming them into the kingdom, giving them his blessing. But what we want to see, it's a beautiful moment, but we want to see the spiritual lesson that's here. And that's found in verse 15. Jesus says, in the midst of all of this, he wants to make a point. Truly, listen up. I want to say something to you. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now think about that for a second. I want to get some feedback from you. What do you think it is that Jesus is saying? What kind of words would you use to describe children that you think Jesus might have in mind when he says, you've got to be like this child here if you're going to enter the kingdom. What words come to mind? Anyone? Trust. Okay, that's one of the words that's there. I mean, think about a child looking to a parent. Absolute trust. Other, other words. Innocent and needy. Is that the word? Innocent and needy. And so you think about the innocence of a child, the neediness of a child. And you think about the, the fact that a child never really thinks about what their needs are. I mean, I don't remember my kids at three or four ever laying up thinking in the night about how the mortgage was going to be paid. Gee, I wonder if we're going to have breakfast on the table in the morning. Now, they may wonder if they're going to get the sugar cereal versus that healthy stuff that mom always puts out. But they, just the, the neediness and the trust that's there. Any other words? dependence and simple-minded life's just not complex for them and they're very dependent I mean they don't even think about doing things for themselves oftentimes in fact they can be somewhat lazy when they get older right what do you mean mom's going to clean your room hello you're 10 and so we try to pass on responsibility to them but they can be very dependent in the way they live their lives from the time they come out of the womb they can't do anything for themselves Everything has to be provided for them. Children are highlighted because there's a sense that they realize what they lack. They realize that they have need. And they're, they're the insignificant people 
And they need someone to come alongside of them. I remember when I was growing up, I don't know what it was like in your home. I know what it was like in my home. Family, friends, whatever would come over. And we're going to be all seated around the table. My mom and dad would say to me, listen, sons, you are to be what? Seen and not what? Heard. That was the rules at our house. In other words, you punky people don't dominate the discussion. The adults are gathering, and you're not going to get in the way of all of this. But there's, there's a sense in which they know that they're needy. They know where they fit in the society in which they live. One commentator put it this way, a little child has nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are, therefore, paradigmatic disciples. In other words, they're a model for us when it comes to discipleship, for only empty hands can be filled. Another goes on and says, young children know that they are needy. They look to their parents to provide everything they need and want, food, clothing, shelter, teaching, activities, guidance, even discipline. And so Jesus says, you've got to be like one of these. You come to me with empty hands, looking to me, knowing you're needy, and knowing that can only be somehow provided for through me. That seems to be the point that Jesus is making. And it's a point that we all need to grasp. Those who realize their neediness, coming to Jesus with empty hands and demonstrate a simple faith, believing that God will provide our true followers of Jesus. Now, we may all be on a journey, on a road for that becoming more and more true for us. But Jesus says that's our goal. There's a simplicity to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like a child, there is to be this total dependence, looking to God for all things. My mind went to the song, Rock of Ages. Listen to verse two. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Verse 3, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Praise God. That's the kind of neediness for which we come to the Lord. And so as we think about that particular scene and that spiritual truth, we ask ourselves the question, are we aware of our unworthiness? Are we aware that we bring nothing to the Lord? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you know what it means to come to Jesus with empty hands? Are you leaning on things in your life that are futile? That in the end do not profit? Do you come to him with that kind of absolute trust? You know, some of you have been here and I'm going up to Mount Kenya and remember the the illustration I shared a few years ago about the keyhole. There's this maneuver. Andrew and I won't be doing it because it's further up the mountain. We're going to the third peak. But to get up to the second and first peak, you've got to go through the keyhole, which is a blind maneuver where you actually have to step out and around and grab. I mean, you're just looking out over nothing. And you have to reach out and around and grab. It's a move of trust. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, that's the way you've got to come to me. Believing, trusting knowing that I'm a God who's going to reach to you in your need and provide like a child. 
And what's interesting is the scene that follows. Because the scene that follows is something maybe we can more identify with. Maybe we can less identify with what it means to be a child because we're grown up. We, we, we have to be responsible. We know how to take care of our own needs. Maybe we identify more with this second scene, the Jesus and the rich man, beginning in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, he was setting out on his journey. And what's really interesting is to stop and think about what that means. That means he's on his way to Jerusalem. What's he going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to die. Jesus is setting his face to the cross so that he might bring about redemption. In the midst of that, someone's going to come up to him and say, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I'm glad you asked. He's on his journey. He's on his way. And so we we see this particular scene. A, A man asks Jesus a question in earnest. Now, what do we know about this man? Well, Jesus is going to say, keep the commandments. And what's the man going to say? He's going to say, I've done that in verse 20. And so we see that this is a very pious individual. He's one that's prone to keep the commandments. We also know that he's rich because Jesus says you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. And he walks away, verse 22, disheartened. He was sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. If we looked at the other gospel accounts, we'd find in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20 that he was young. And if we looked at Luke 18, 18, it tells us that he was a ruler. That's why we refer to this story as the rich young ruler. It's because when you pull all this together, this is what we learn about him. And what we really like about him, if we're reading this story, he has a very sincere question he's bringing to Jesus. I mean, so many of the questions that have been fired at Jesus are to trap him, correct? I mean, everybody's out to get Jesus. Everybody's out to take him down. And here is actually an earnest question, wanting to know this from Jesus. And so Jesus responds to him in verses 18 and 19. He begins with, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. And so he lists the last six commandments. Now, what we learn when we think about the Ten Commandments is the first four are those Godward commandments our love for God, the last six are the human word commandments, our love for one another. And that's where Jesus brings his focus on these commandments that you can actually see. You can't really see someone's love for God except in various ways manifested, but where you really see God's, someone's love for God is in the way they love other people. And so Jesus is going to focus there and he lists these commandments. He, he doesn't use do not covet, but it says do not defraud there. It seems that this was probably a common way of talking about do not coveting. Do not covet because when you covet, you actually defraud. You take what is not yours. You take what is someone else's. And so Jesus really seems to be focusing on the heart there. And so he lists these commandments. And what does the, the man respond in verse 20? Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I've done this. And you can almost hear the joy in these words as he begins to recognize the possibility of him being in. I'm in. I've done this. But Jesus isn't done. In verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. If we don't see this expressed of Jesus a ton in the Gospels. This is the only time Jesus is referenced as having this emotion toward another person in the Gospels. And you can, you can sense the lingering look of Jesus loving him as he looks at him. 
There's something about this man and his earnestness that's attractive to Jesus. There's something about this man and his not understanding his need that grips the heart of Jesus. And so Jesus says, you lack one thing. Imagine what it's like for this man. You lack one thing. I mean, I can just see him. Tell me. All right, I've kept the commandments. Just, just tell me, what, what's the one thing? I just want to know what the one thing is. But it's the next words out of Jesus' uh, mouth that just are absolutely disheartening to the man. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Just one thing. Just one thing. You see, this right here is not a call to poverty. Get rid of your riches. It's a call to discipleship. Where is your love? Where is your trust? Where is your loyalty? His lack is not his failure to give. His lack is where his heart is and ultimately what his trust is in. What is a person loyal to above all? That's the issue here. What are you loyal to above all? What am I loyal to above all? What do we trust above all? Vocation, relationship, style of living, sinful passions. What is our go-to when life isn't going our way and we want to feel better about life? What is our go-to? If I just had blank, then my life would be better. If I just had blank, wow, things would really turn around. If I just had blank... Life would be full. What's the blank? To put our trust in something, anything above Jesus is idolatry. We make something else or someone else a God and we worship. In um, uh, Isaiah 43, it says, deliver me for thou art my God. We look to someone or something else for life, for deliverance. We believe that life is found there somehow and not in Jesus. So what Jesus does here is he puts the man's loyalty to the test. Jesus is asking, can you pull your heart away from this one thing and come follow me and give me everything? Can you do that? You see, the man is struggling actually on two counts. Jesus is only going to focus on one. The first count the man is struggling with is he actually believes he has something to bring to Jesus. I've kept all the law. Jesus isn't going to deal with that one. But that's a problem too because it's with empty hands that we come to Jesus. But the second one he struggles with is he treasures his wealth. He trusts his wealth. His heart clings to his wealth and he's not able to comprehend parting ways with that to which he's put his trust. And so he's disheartened and he walks away sorrowful as a result of that, his God has been exposed. You lack one thing. You see, it's not what we bring to Jesus that gets us into the kingdom. It's not our success in this life. It's not any amount of wealth that we could ever accumulate. It's that we forsake all and give him our whole heart. In the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, it captured my attention this past week too. Verse 1, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And poor contempt 
on all my pride. In verse 2, it says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Verse 4, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. When all eyes get fixed on Jesus, he is to be the treasure of our entire being in our heart. And so Jesus causes this man to look away from his own treasure and look clearly to Jesus and he's disheartened and sorrowful and he walks away. And Jesus wants to make a spiritual point here. And so he, he looks around and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, those who cling to something apart from Jesus. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's quite the graphic illustration, isn't it? A camel being pulled through a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's not about riches. It's about loyalty. It's about where the heart is. It's harder ultimately for a rich man to tear his heart away from riches and give his heart to Jesus. But what is that blank for us? That's what we have to figure out. What is that blank for us? And the disciples then are just, who can be saved? My goodness. And this is where we get a point that's worth underlining in this passage. Jesus looks at them and says, you know what? You're right. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, God can take a person who is desperately clinging to something futile for life, busily chasing that light all over the room, thinking somehow life can be found in it. God can take that person and rip their heart away from that and focus that heart totally on him. Amen. God can take whatever that blank is that we say, deliver me for thou art my God and God can rip us away from that and give us a heart toward him. Those of you who were dark and dead, he brings light and he makes alive. Oh, the disciples, their desperation is good. But what they need is understand the grace of God and what he does. And he moves in and he changes. Those who cling to other created things for life and therefore do not recognize their neediness are not true followers of Jesus. And Jesus wants to make that clear to this rich man here. And so as we think about our own lives, you lack one thing. What might that be for us? It's going to be different for us. What we cling to is going to have different look to our lives. What are we loyalty, loyal to above all? But here's what's amazing. Because in this passage, the rich man is being asked to walk away from his riches, give it all up, and follow Jesus. And notice what the disciples say. Hey, we've done that, Peter says in verse 28. See, we've left everything. We did that. We did what he's refusing to do. And it feels like it's giving something up. It feels like there's a cost to it. But look what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, listen up. Listen to me. There's no one who's left house or brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands for my sake and for my gospel. Underline those words. For my sake and for the gospel 
who will not receive a hundredfold now, not just in the future, but now, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. But notice this, here's the sobering thought with persecutions. Because we get the whole package when we get Jesus. We don't write out the script for ourselves. He does give an amazing promise here. This is what I call the bonus. You don't leave anything behind but that you don't gain. But when you follow Jesus, it's not just about what you gain because there may be a price to pay as well. And it comes with persecutions. When we put our hands to the plow, we don't force our own agenda. We follow Jesus. And that gives us a life that's worth living. And you don't give up anything. You gain everything. But you might get persecutions along with that. That's a sobering thought. But Jesus says, consider this in verse 31. Listen up. Just pay attention. I've been teaching you guys for years. And I want you to get it. And he says to them, the many who are first, they're going to be last. But the last will be first. Jesus takes what we think about life and he's constantly turning it upside down. You don't lose anything when you follow me. My mind went to Psalm 23. Certainly, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, that's what that's talking about, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's in the age to come. Jesus is making bold statements here about this bonus and the sobering thought of what it means to follow him. We've got these two scenes, very contrasting. This little child, nothing to bring, knowing their neediness, Jesus says, that's what it takes to inherit the kingdom. And you got this rich man, got the world by the tail, rich young ruler, gonna have an impact. And Jesus says, you gotta let go of that if you wanna follow me. And he refuses to do so. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible is when he walks away. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Walt's going to come and lead us in a song. But as, as we consider the truths of this passage, is there a one thing for you that you put your trust in over and above? Jesus. Do you know your neediness? in a way that draws you to the throne. Perhaps you've never put your trust in Jesus. I'm going to invite some Grace Group shepherds to come up front. We've got little badges that they'll wear to identify themselves. And they'll remain here through, through this closing song and even a little bit after the service. If you want to come and talk with someone or pray with someone, they'd love to tell you more about this wonderful good news of Jesus. They'd love to pray with you about walking away from that thing that you're clinging to for life. And so let's just bow silently for a moment in prayer.